Welcome to the Culture Design Show, where we feature conversations with leaders and thinkers who are passionate about culture and design. Now, let's get started with the show. This podcast is brought to you by Culture Design Studio. This is where I help creative organizations transform their cultures from being controlling to being collaborative. Now, here are some of the things that I've learned. Your creative talent demands a co-creative culture in order to produce their best work. But there's a problem. So let's see if you can recognize some of these signs. There's no framework to move your culture forward. You have high turnover and low morale. There's increasing toxicity across all levels. There's team engagement and satisfaction that are on the decline. There's a misalignment between the employer brand and the employee experience. And there's poor communication about expectations and values. So if you want to learn more about how I provide facilitation and coaching for your creative team, reach out to me at culturedesignstudio.com. Our guest today is Peter Marcados. With 20 years as a design leader, Peter continues to bring great work to life. He drives teams to find meaningful connections between brand, product, and culture, always landing design in the reality of business. Peter currently serves as the chief design officer at the stealth startup, Curie. He leads a product design organization focusing on redefining our relationship with devices by valuing the cost of attention in every interaction. How does the value of information change for a customer when you consider its impact on well-being? Utilizing AI-empowered design solutions, Curie is radically rethinking what it means to create an essential interface. Before Curie, Peter was the global design director at Uber. In 2018, he led Uber's rebrand, garnering best rebrand of the year by Adweek and brand new. The following year, his team successfully launched Uber's brand and product experience at the New York Stock Change for its uh, IPO. And the same year, he brought to market Uber's first fintech product, Uber Money at Money 2020. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Glad we finally got to get get together on this. Yeah, it's it's been great. We've stayed to touch. I think we kind of reconnect. Well, we connected initially over LinkedIn, and uh, uh, I know that things got hairy here and there, and we finally made it happen. Where we about what was it about a week or so ago? We, yeah. we connected and and shared uh, some of our experience, and and so I'm really excited that you're on the show. I'd love to hear, as we all do for all of our guests, if you can share with our audience a little bit about your origin story. Who is Peter and how have you made it to this point in life? Sure. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, I think it all started uh, going way back. I got my first uh, job as a, as a webmaster working for this company called The Online Investor. And it was at that time when Flash was all the rage. Yeah. And we, uh, we developed or I developed a series of investing tutorials in Flash. And I, I was hooked, you know, to mm-hmm. see the sort of the reaction that people had to using those. We almost sold them. So that was exciting. And that really, you know, led me into um, design. But really what I started to get more interested in was really the storytelling side yeah. of design. Yeah. And um, I, I started my own uh, brand identity firm. Then I met up with a business partner of mine named Tyler Moore back in the day. Um, and we were very inventive and we came up with the name of MM uh, for our design firm. And we, we had that for 10 years. And I would say it was during that time that 
I really learned a lot about running a design business. I learned a lot about what clients wanted, uh, what they needed. And I think ultimately what it boiled down to was they really wanted the whole experience. They wanted their, their brand identity. In addition, they wanted to figure out how that would uh, jive with their product design. And so what we ended up creating for 10 years was a brand and product development firm. Um, what worked with a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of biotech companies, uh, tech companies in the Valley, um, had some moments working with Sean Parker and, and Peter Thiel's group. Early, early back in that whole process was one of two designers that worked on the Facebook logo. Mm. And it's just a lot of very memorable moments from that. And I think more than anything, what I took from that besides sort of the entrepreneurial mindset of, of running a business was just this idea, the importance of craft in design. Yeah. And, you know, we were inherently cross-functional team. We had, you know, uh, interaction designers, we had, you know, graphic designers in-house and, and it was just a, a muscle that we all, we all strengthened, you know, working on identity work, switching over to wireframes and helping, you know, product companies figure out, you know, what their, what their flows and experiences were going to be. And then, um, you know, times changed and it, it became time to close that business. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a job at Uber back at the end of 2016, I believe. Mm. And, you know, this idea of, you know, telling an authentic story for, for a company or a brand stuck with me. But I think really it was there that I realized this um, interconnectedness between brand, product and culture mm. and how they're, they're really inseparable. And I think it became galvanized at Uber around, uh, you know, 2017 when the whole delete Uber thing mm, happened. Yeah, and yeah. on that day, it did not matter how good the product was or, right. or, or what have you, because the brand and the product were, were one. And I was lucky enough during that time to, to lead the uh, brand experience team at Uber, which was a 35 person team at its height, super cross-functional. I had architects, strategists, mm. uh, product designers, graphic and brand designers. And, um, you know, Uber didn't ask me to set this up. Uh, it, it just happened because we were servicing multiple different businesses yeah. within one organization. And, uh, you know, that experience led to some, some really wonderful accomplishments and, you know, feel thankful for the team that I worked with. With there, also the partners that we worked with as well. Some of which you know, Forrest is you know one of those guys. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it, that, that was a, that was a foundational time for me, and and I really learned the power of what a, a multidisciplinary horizontal team can do, especially within the walls of you know uh, a major corporation. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, in 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 short, that that's kind of the history. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, as I mentioned before, we pushed record like your your work at MM. Uh, the reason why it came up in our conversation last time was because I quoted Winston Churchill and your eyes lit up. <laughs> and that quote was, uh, we shape our buildings thereafter they shape us. And you actually with for one of your clients had that up as a quote, I believe it was on the wall or as a major part of uh, yes. the brand message. Oh, man, I loved it. I mean, obviously, that is one of my favorite quotes of all time, because I actually think that it aligns so much with uh, with how I view things and even the idea of translating what I used to do in architecture regarding the physical environment, the buildings, uh, and translating that to the structures of organizations and how yes. we design ourselves. And, and in what you're saying, even about what you did at uh, Uber, and that is this alignment of a brand, product, and culture, I have a similar sort of trifecta and it is brand culture and space. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. product in a sense for the workplace, the product 
that's the product for those that are working in the team in terms of the physical environment. So it's very interesting to hear some of the similarities in our story and even some of the inspirations we have and to hear you talk about these multifunctional, multidisciplinary teams. So speaking of that, I, I was uh, looking at your feed on LinkedIn the other day and you made a pretty passionate uh post that actually gained some traction and has incited some really good conversation. And you linked an article and the article, basically the title of it was, when did design stop being multidisciplinary? And Uh I'm going to quote what you wrote down. You said, I'm concerned that the industry is falling into a state of myopia. I've Uh used that term before too. So (laughs) I love it. When it comes to the over specialization of skill sets, not just at the talent level, but also at the organizational level. And you, you even give an example, Apple knows this and look at how they're doing. Startup Uh naturally began as hybrid orgs and that's often where innovation originates. And this is the last piece here. Design inherently is cross-functional. Why do we cut it into pieces? Uh Why are you so passionate about this? Because I've seen what these teams can do. I've seen what cross-functional teams can do. And what, as I mentioned at Uber, the brand experience team was was definitely one of those teams. I also find it you know, ironic that these corporations will hire such companies, you know, whether it's uh, different agencies, what have you, you know, the Collins and the Kotos and the Wolf Olins yeah. of the world. So those are, those are cross-functional teams. When you, when you hire those folks, they're bringing all disciplines of design to you. And these companies pay millions of dollars, you know, to these firms to, to bring brand and product ideas to life. And again, I think at Uber, what was uh, ironic to me was, we were a high performing team. We were successful at what we did, but the business never really asked for this thing to happen, mm. but it benefited from that. Yeah. And now that I'm at, at, at Curie, it, I'm just reminded again of just how cross-functional design is because right. we don't have the budget to hire those other firms, right? right. And my right. team's having to, to do a lot of different forms of design to make, to ship, to ship product, to ship marketing, to ship brand. And it's just been, I think, a palpable reminder. Uh, It actually takes me kind of back to the MM days a bit that, uh, you know, these skills don't have to be segmented to just product design and product design. That's all they know. I think the main thing is this is customers. They don't experience design that way. They don't experience a product devoid of the brand reputation of that mm-hmm. company. They right. don't experience a brand devoid of the product's functionality. So why would we train and nurture organizations, train designers and nurture organizations to think so compartmentalized? Yeah. You know, um, I think design's a cross-functional sport, really. Yeah. And I always try to hire those sort of hybrid designers myself, and it's becoming harder and harder to do so. Well, yeah, that was going to be one of my questions is, is if if you're looking for hybrid designers or I, where where would the, the T-shaped designer come into play? You know, you've yeah, IDO, they talk a lot about IDO, uh, T-shaped folks where you have great breadth of sort of exposure and interest and intrigue, but then in one specific area, you're pretty deep, you know, almost a specialist. So Mm -hmm. somewhat of a generalist, but more than anything, uh, what are your thoughts about the T-shaped designer um, and, and how, and how do you find these unicorns? Because it almost seems like you're at, you're looking for a unicorn designer. (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of true. Uh, I mean, I'll give one example where um, it's a liability to not have these kinds of folks. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to hire product designers 
and their resumes come in. And, you know, to me, the resume is the ultimate litmus test of how good a designer is. Mm. Um, I can, and without fail, I mean, I've looked at hundreds and hired many, many designers, but if that resume is not nicely designed, if the typography is not well uh, executed, then I don't even need to go to their portfolio. Um, And I will say when at Curie, these designers might, some of these product designers, they would send in their resumes and oftentimes it'd be just like a, a, a pages template or a word doc mm-hmm. template. And I'm mm-hmm. like, what is going on, <laughs> man? Like you're a designer, like you should design the crap out of this thing, you know? And sometimes I'll say it is, you know, you will go to their portfolio and they might have like good UI skills. But to me, if, if you come up on the product design in the current state, you actually might not get that typography training. Yeah. And really when you think about interfaces of today, oftentimes that's the main thing that's on there is, is the typography. That's how you're communicating to those customers. So if you don't, if you're missing out on these foundational skills, then you're really missing out on, on, I think a very powerful tool to make you a much stronger designer. So well, I'm yeah. not even going to go down this one rabbit hole, but I'll give you a little taste of what the the little bit of pushback about a well-designed designing yes, okay. resume. And that yeah. is how well do well-designed resumes, at least visually, pass the AI sniff test <laughs> for these recruiters? Because I found that many times I've tried to do that well-designed resume, yeah. but then yeah. it, it doesn't get picked up by those, uh, those AI resumes bots that just don't recognize that. Uh, but oh, that, that's, interesting. that's for another, another day. Yeah, that is. Another okay. day. But, but, yes. uh, so, so multidisciplinary, I definitely understand that. I'm going to, as I said before, I come from the world of architecture mm-hmm. and by nature, that industry is such a multi, uh, takes on a multidisciplinary approach in that, yes, we design, we coordinate, we set the vision, but then ultimately we are working with other specialists such as the mechanical engineer, the structural engineer, and all these other different things. So by virtue of, you think of a building is a, a collection of systems mm-hmm. that are working together uh, to uh to make things happen, we have mm-hmm. to to work that way. But in design, and I've actually working with other types of functional departments, such as even marketing. In some cases, it looks like marketing organizations at at firms as they begin to grow, they also become more specialized. And I wonder if, on one hand, there is a need for some degree of specialization, but then to your point, it's attention right? Mm -hmm. How far do you go to specialization versus generalists? What are your thoughts about as the teams begin to scale and, you know, like in a a startup that is in stealth mode, you have to Mm -hmm. wear multiple hats. But as you scale a team, say at Uber, Mm -hmm. how do you avoid that over-specialization? I think it's a really good point. It's a really good point because I think you have to have some specialization. Like, for example, when I look at social media and folks that, that run social for major organizations, that's a very specific skill. And uh, you, you kind of have to know it really, really well, I think, to, to make sure that you're getting you know, a positive impact through the content that you would put out on your social channels um, as one example. Uh, and even in product design, too, or product marketing, you know, very specific. Yeah. Um, but I think that the key is, is don't divide up all of your design teams to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll need your specialists, but for me, I think 
it benefits organizations to have some hybridization or some team that's horizontally checking into all these things, even if the sole benefit is to make sure that that system of design at that brand's language and marketing and product experiences are coherent, not necessarily consistent, because I think we're moving into a world where it's not just about consistency. I think coherence is very important. But if everybody is is specialized and looking at their own thing without anyone sort of overlooking that, you kind of have a hydra situation, right? Mm-hmm. Where you know, and you see you see these inefficiencies and these mistakes. Where like, uh, in this you know, this happened a lot at Uber back in the days before it get, got organized. Where like the marketing team might say this, yeah, and yeah. then all of a sudden the rest of the organization is like, what the heck? Yeah, you know. So I don't think it's an either or. Right. I think you bring up a good point. You do need some specialists for sure. I, I'm not going to kid, you know, I, I'm no social media expert, right? I would never profess to be. Uh, I would want a social media expert to sort of yeah. own, own that domain, but that person should be checking into a, a horizontal, you know, team or entity that's making sure that it's all wrapping up together in, right. in, a, in a good way. Yeah, it definitely is a tension. And I, and I, and I definitely see that it, I, on one hand, yes, it's very specific to design. Um, but I could also say that it is a similar prop or challenge, a similar tension that as any functional team, whether it's design, marketing, product management, whatever it is, Mm-hmm. As you begin to scale, there is that tension of like, let us, let's have at least the ability to have maybe, you know, maybe it's a, a, cer- a certain person, a team that has ownership over ownership horizontally, but is able to still allow for that specialization. What are some of the benefits that you would say of ha- having this multifunctional approach? So, I mean, coming up more on the brand side, mm-hmm. um, a brand is basically, you know, it's an empty vessel, right? That a company fills with promises of some sort and deeds. And if you don't have someone that's making sure that all of those deeds are tying together to back up that promise, then yeah. you're going to have a broken down experience on the customer side. So I think that's one major benefit, especially now as brands are not seen one dimensionally, they're not just seen on social media or in a TV commercial. It's, it's multivariate. Like they're seen in many different ways. And I've definitely seen the cost of, uh, to organizations where a brand behaves bad on some channel or says things on some channel that's not in line with sort of the rest of the ethos of what the company is trying to do. So that kind of gets back to the coherence uh, statement I made earlier. So I think that, you know, that that's a big one right there is everything's transparent now, right? No company can do something over here and you don't sort of know, you know, no one sees it. Like that just doesn't happen anymore. So um, yeah. And it's not, it's also, I should, I want to say too, you know, on the, on the brand side, it's not about brand police, like making sure that everyone's just like dotting their eyes and so forth. It's really about, how do you harness the power of all of these different aspects of a company into one, you know, one force, yeah. one holistic force? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think where that resonates for me is, you know, going back to, say, the architecture world where, you know, there were several disciplines along the development of any major project. You know, you've got sort of the real estate focus 
uh, land development. Then you have the architecture piece. And then you have the construction piece. Uh, the firm I used to work at before, Visioneering Studios, uh, they they took a lot of took a lot of cues from Disney Imagineering, mm. uh, and and they realized that if they were hired early on in a project, almost as a master planner, and then handed it off to an architect. Mm-hmm. And then that those plans were then handed off to a, a contractor that the original vision that these master planners had would erode mm-hmm. and you would lose some of that initial idea. So we called it vision erosion. And so mm-hmm. Visioneering Studios eventually says, said, we want to own the entire process end to end, literally from real estate to construction we mm-hmm. want to have the ability to literally be in the driver's seat. So they become a, they, they became a multifunctional family of companies. And mm-hmm. they took some of those cues from even the world of film, mm-hmm. where in some mm-hmm. cases they have what they call continuity editors, where mm-hmm. they want to make sure that the entire story, the integrity of the entire story is intact mm-hmm. and that in between scenes and in between takes that everything is flowing together. And so there's someone like you use that word myopic, that we're not being myopic about just that one scene, but we're looking mm-hmm. back at the entire story, making sure that everything is coherent, everything that is, yeah. is consistent. And I think sometimes it's a matter of mindset, like, okay, mm-hmm. for this half day, I'm going to step back and I'm going to look at it from a, you know, like a 10,000 foot level. And then yeah. at certain points, then maybe I'll go back into my task oriented. And that's the thing we've learned even in architecture is that you can be so task oriented, literally doing the details on drawings that you mm-hmm. forget to pan out and say, oh my gosh, but we're losing the overall intention here. And I think the same could be in design, could be in marketing, could be in any organization. Yeah. I agree with that. I think, I think you, you remind me too of, I don't remember where I read this. Maybe it was in the Steve Jobs book and he was talking about the, uh, the Pixar campus. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pixar campus uh, was intentionally designed to allow for sort of cross-pollination of, of, of ideas. Those right? collisions. People, those, yeah. yeah, those collisions. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They run into each other. And I think um, really it's about a diversity of thought will lead to uh, a stronger work product or whatever you want to call it, right? Stronger piece of architecture, stronger design. And uh, I mean, you just look at Pixar, great, great example of a, of a company that's um, their, their throughput is exceptional. And, um, and how much of that is attributed to sort of the architecture and the space mm-hmm. of, of the campus? Who knows? But uh, clearly something's working. Apple being another great example, yeah. too. Uh, especially certain teams, there are horizontal on purpose. All right. And, you know, again, exceptional work that comes out of that organization. Yeah. I, I, it reminds me too, speaking of Pixar, and it may be similar to what you said about Steve Jobs or at least his story, but also the co-founder of Pixar, Ed Catmull and his book, yeah. uh, Creativity Inc. And, and there are certain th- principles that he espoused that, you know, what contributed to the creative culture at, uh, at Pixar. And one of the things that he said was this idea of, I'm not sure if this is the term he used, but the idea mm-hmm. of candor or creative abrasion. Mm. And the idea that uh, people need to be able to have this tension, this abrasion of like different ideas and like, hey, I disagree and have these passionate (laughs) discussions. Uh, Not everyone is used to having those. It's amazing what can happen when a team or a piece of a team is so focused on something and then they share that work with the broader organization. And, you know, when or if they get that wrong, you're like, 
wow, uh, how'd this happen? You have multiple people making the same bad or contributing to the same bad decision. That's def- I've definitely witnessed that. And I think it's just, you know, it's as simple as making sure that you're, you're checking in with those around you that, you know, might look at that situation differently or might approach it, you know, might approach it differently. Yeah. Um, I, I don't recall in looking at your, your profile. Um, did you go to design school? I, I didn't check. You know, you know, um, so, uh, I went to Kansas university and, uh, I majored in psychology, mm. uh, in particular, sort of the psychology of religion. I was pretty fascinated by what belief systems empowered people, yeah. religion being a big one. Um, but I got, I got a minor in, in computer science. So that's about as close as I yeah. got. Um, <laughs> There was no interaction design yeah. when I was in college. Uh, you know, there was a strong gra- uh, graphic design uh, department there. But even there, you know, we, we ended up making a website with a small group of people that was about um, think, learn and act on local and national issues. That was actually the first time it was that uh, terribly designed website <laughs> that got me the job at that company out, out here in California at the online investor. That was the wow. one thing I had to show for myself. Um, but uh yeah, no, I was I was definitely intrigued by what the internet had to uh, had to had to give the yeah, world. Yeah, and the the reason I ask that is because uh, I mean I went to architecture school and it was brutal yeah. uh, in terms of you know you have these these crits or critiques where you present yeah. your projects, put them up on the wall, and you basically open yourself up to mm-hmm. <laughs> criticism. I mean it. I mean it was almost like uh, a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. Or any one of uh, the visiting critics, or even your your design studio professor, you would present them this physical model that you literally labored over all nighters, two or three all nighters, if not more, mm-hmm. to make this physical model of your design. And then they would say, you know what? No, I don't like the design. I'm going to take literally rip your physical model apart and kind of like reorient how things should be. And and that was the um, the thick skin that we developed even in architecture school. And so I feel like yes. in some ways that was part of the upbringing in the creative, the architecture world. And and I think the more and more you get into the profession, at least in some cases, depending on the firm, you lose that type of feedback. You lose that type sure. of candor and it, and the ability to push back and have that difference of opinion is lost. And sometimes it's because you weren't taught that in either in your training or even as a culture, what are some cultural elements that you have found to be useful in developing creative teams? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I, there's two major ones. One I'll just kind of go with, uh, first is the wall crit. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we had that at MN, we, you know, painted these magnetic, uh, wall, put these magnetic walls up and we would pin our work up and we'd all talk about it as a team. And I took that same, um, practice with me into Uber. Um, uh, the, uh, the building admins were very confused as to why we would do this, but we took one huge wall there and put up these magnetic whiteboards every Wednesday. Uh, so we were a global design team. So we, uh, would actually evaluate the work of, of, of other design teams at Uber mm-hmm. and other parts of the globe. And so every Wednesday morning, we would put all the work up. Um, some folks would maybe broadcast over um, Zoom and uh, we'd talk about the work. And I actually, I would try to not talk too much. I, yeah. I actually wanted to see yeah. how the team would react, right? And uh, I remember once this guy came up to me and he said, um, he's like, oh man, this is kind of brutal. Like, why are you... <laughs> 
why are you critiquing the work in front of everybody? Oh. Like, why, why not like just talk to them individually afterwards? Yeah. It's like, cause that defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. You know, we all can learn together yeah. from yeah, each absolutely. other's feedback, yeah. not just my feedback, but like everybody's feedback. And so the whole team's bar of excellence gets higher and higher. And honestly, like there was very few times where people were like hurt by that yeah. or, or, or what have you. I think, I think genuinely designers are curious people, yeah. right? Um, they want to grow. They want to get better at their craft. I've never met a designer that's like, you know what? I'm pretty good. I'm done. You know, yeah. like it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. They always want to get better. Um, so, so this idea of critique and the studio culture, that's yeah. what I yeah. talk, that's yeah. what I mean by studio yeah. culture. That's a big one. I think the other one for me is, uh, and it's important to me that the design that any organization makes is meaningful. You know, I think at MM, we made a lot of really beautiful stuff. And sometimes though, it was just stuff that we were into, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. it, it didn't necessarily like make a whole lot of sense for the client, but damn, it looked good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and as I matured in my career, I wanted to make sure that the design, when I talk about, you mentioned in my bio, landing design and the reality of the business. Well, to me, that means that design system needs to be, bit, you know, built on some kind of strategic insight. And that strategic, in, strategic insight should be expressed in design in some way. And I think the way that you do that, the way that I do that, is I write a, a design charter for that mm, organization. Yeah, and that yeah. design charter is basically taking the mission of the company, the business priorities of the company, and creating a halo around the work that we do. It makes the design team feel invested in the work. Um, and it, you know, it's helpful to help prioritize what you say no to, yeah, what you say yes yeah. to. And then when you have to work on something that might not be the most exciting thing, you at least know that you're contributing to the business, you're contributing to the overall mission of the company. And so design charters, I think, are, are really important. Yeah. At Ubers, it was designed to include. We are very much about uh, wayfinding for a moving world. So we had to make sure that all of our touch points and surfaces were, were AAA or AA to AAA um, you know, visible mm -hmm. in terms of contrast ratio mm -hmm. and all that good stuff, yeah. signage. You know, uh, We wanted to make sure the illustration system was, was uh, cognizant of the folks that we serve, make sure that you know, if we're making something for for uh, Latin America that it felt of that, of that region. Yeah. Um, and the typeface, we, you know, we developed a typeface there with, um, with Jeremy Mickle and that, you know, there's 13 plus languages, right? So all of a sudden it builds meaning and purpose into the work. Yeah. Um, and I think those two things between like, let's have a studio culture. Let's talk about the work together. Uh, let's try and get it off your hard drive too. That's one <laughs> thing I hate about today's design, you know, yeah. it just, it's lost in a Figma file or in yeah. some illustrator layer yeah. and then a design charter you know, to, to yeah. bring the team together. I love those. And I, you know, I've kind of shared a little bit about my, you know, early workings of the, the studio culture and, but the design charter, like that is such a fascinating thing. And, and now that I, you know, I remember you, you brought that up the very first time we talked about, it, and I found that so fascinating to almost use design as a cultural language. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think it, it re reminded me of uh, some of the work that I saw at Herman Miller, uh, mm -hmm. I grew up in the Holland, Michigan area and recently mm -hmm. went back to go visit the Herman Miller HQ. And I noticed that they literally have, I, I'm going to, I'm going to say it's their version of a design charter. And it talked mm -hmm. about 10 or 12 different sort of guiding principles that they employ in their design. And I found it so fascinating and I see so much benefit to that. In fact, the idea of a charter itself 
mm-hmm. think it's a fascinating concept that if you use a design charter, we've talked about in some of my organization design work as a culture charter mm-hmm. or a project charter, a mm-hmm. team charter. It, it like, okay, let's take all of the guesswork away from the middle of the process. Let's predetermine the, the, what that's going to look like, at least in spirit, how it yeah. fleshes out could kind of change along the way. Why is it important to have some of those things like charters, whether it's design or otherwise? What are the benefits of that for work that comes after that? Yeah, well, one, as I mentioned, like, you know, it grounds the team. It makes the team feel like they're contributing to something important. But I think the other side of that, too, is, um, you know, in this day and age, I think a lot of people feel like they're designers, right? There's there's. You can build a website in Squarespace that can look really good and you might not know anything about design, right? And I think a big part, especially when you're working in a, in a matrix organization, the narrative around the work is hugely important. So if the work is based on something meaningful that relates to company goals, relates to the company's mission, all of a sudden when you go into that room and you got to convince that leader of that business group, hey, you know, we're going to do this and this is why. Uh, you're all of a sudden not really in the subjective realm of design. You're actually like, oh, okay, well, I, I see how this lines up to our business goals. And um, I see, you know, how this lines up to the mission. And that narrative around the work becomes, I think, more successful when it's based on something like a charter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at Uber, one of the things that, uh, that my team was responsible for was uh, safety was a huge priority at Uber you know, of course, they're moving millions of people every single day. And we needed to figure out how do we visualize safety in a, in a, in a consistent and coherent fashion so that when someone sees this thing on product or sees in an ad, we know that we're talking about the same thing. Well, you know, Uber has the rides business, the eats business, the freight business, uh, well, used to have the autonomous vehicle business, et cetera, et cetera. And so safety touched all of those different lines yeah. of business. And, you know, because we were starting in a place that made sense for the, for, for the, for the corporation, that was very important. You know, when we go and we'd have these conversations, we, we just, we started off on the right foot because we had, you know, a charter that had principles that aligned to safety. You know, the CEOs up here talking about this around safety, were taking that same language into the charter. All of a sudden we're just starting in a different place. I think, when you're having a design conversation that's not founded on, on on a belief of some sort that's relevant, you're going to have a hard time trying to convince those people mm-hmm. unless you have the same taste, right? And and that's where that's kind of what I meant earlier around like everyone is a designer. I think right. a lot of people yeah. feel like they have an understanding of taste when it comes to design. Well, if you don't agree on what's tasteful, man, you're going to have right. a hard time right. trying to sell that idea through, right? Yeah, I mean, I. I, I it seems to me uh, that it's such an absolute benefit to have this design charter to influence those things, as you say. So there might be some people, uh, and I want you to respond to this. Uh, there might be some people that say, man, we're, you know, we're a scaling high growth organization. We're like just trying to get things done. Like we're, the, the work is just so fast and furious. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I'd love to have a design charter, but like, I don't, we don't have the time to do that. It almost yeah. seems that a, a design charter might be something that a chief design officer would lead. 
and how many companies have a chief design officer. So, so respond back to me. Like I, I'm basically yeah. saying we're going too fast, too furious. We don't have a sure. CEO. Like to have a design charter is like a luxury that most companies don't have. So yeah, I think what, what I see you where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the main thing is you're right. It does take time to figure that out, but I think it saves you time in the end mm, because yeah. I think, you know, just to look, let's say you're a designer, you're given a design task and let's say it's wide open, make whatever you want. Oh my gosh. You're going to spin your wheels at some point, right? Unless you have a vision and it, it's the right vision and you execute on it. I think the same goes on an organizational level. If there is a binding document, a charter, mm -hmm. a belief system mm -hmm. with principles, like mm -hmm. we're going to do this, but we're not going to do that. You have reasons for the, you have a rationale to design against that saves time. And so, yes, at front, up front, it might take some time. Mm -hmm. You might feel like, oh my gosh, this is, this is too much time investment, but down the line, like, here's another example. When we would evaluate work, whether it's at Curie right now or at Uber, we have a language in which we evaluate the work through. And we all share that language. And I can say, hey, that's not X, whatever it is, right? They know exactly what I'm talking about. They know how to fix it. They know how to, they know how to zag mm -hmm, against what mm -hmm. they're doing. That's a huge time savings. Yeah. I remember uh, Alex uh, Schaefer uh, from Airbnb, mm. who led design there for, for a while, up until I think today. <laughs> I think he actually, uh, I think he resigned today from Airbnb. Oh, wow. But I remember I heard a podcast with him. And, uh, you know, they have the mission of belong anywhere. Right. And, uh, he was telling a story where he's sitting in a room and he's got an engineer or two, he's got a designer, product manager, maybe a UX researcher. And anytime that conversation around the work got confusing or, or, you know, muddled, uh, they'd go back to belong anywhere. Mm -hmm. And, and obviously that's a huge generalization, but you know, that, that was the founding agreement. And they yeah. knew that if they were designing something that didn't adhere to that, then, they're likely going down the wrong path. So again, I think it takes time up front, but I think it saves heaps of time down the road. Yeah. I think that's so well said because I think that goes for any of these types of charters. Again, whether it's design, culture, organization, project, team, it does, it's it, anything that is, that is good takes upfront time to do. Yeah, it's, it's not, uh, it, it, you know, at the short term horizon, it's not efficient it may not even be necessarily effective, but down the mm -hmm. line, it's like, it's like that whole concept of 1% deg one degree shift over time is a huge impact, right? Mm -hmm. It is mm -hmm. like, yeah, you may not see it in the short term what that one degree shift means, but if you keep traveling for a year, that shift becomes much bigger. And, and I think the same thing goes for the, the charters. You're able to save a lot of time. It becomes a shorthand. Uh, it becomes this shared language. Like you said, mm -hmm. they say something. Oh, yeah, I get it. Like, okay, no, no problem. Mm -hmm. Like, it saves, who knows, half so hour many conversation. Minutes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think another thing, too, even, even before at MM, when we would uh, work on different, you know, uh, brand generation concepts for, for clients, I'd always ask my team. So in that, so in that situation, there was not a, a charter wouldn't have helped because yeah. so we're literally working with different companies all the time. Right. But I would always ask my team, I'd say, do not get into illustrator or Photoshop for a while. I want you to write down your concepts. Mm. And our first meeting where we talk about concepts, there would maybe be some pencil sketches, maybe, but it was mostly like, here's my concept. This is the paragraph. 
and let's have a conversation around it. Mm -hmm. Thinking, right? Yeah. Just that idea of like thinking and writing it out. What is the story I'm trying to tell here? Saves so much time. Because otherwise you jump into a digital tool yeah. and you just start vomiting all over it and you just wait, you just say like go and go and go and go. I, you know, for myself, you know, uh, when I design, I try to do the same thing. How, how, how long can I stay in my, in my sketchbook before, you know, getting into, uh, and for me, it's illustrator. No, I think the new generation is Figma and, and <laughs> yeah. sketch, right. But yeah. yeah, no, that's so good. I, I think, I mean, that goes for, for so many things. I think it goes back to even strategy before you start, you know, figuring out what is the actual design, um, yeah. really understanding the clear things in that regard. So I think that's, that's well said. Man, I, I, I feel like there are so many topics that we could you know, create a rabbit hole to go down. So I look forward yeah. to future conversations. I feel like, you know, um, you, when you quoted that Winston Churchill quote, like, okay, I'll be friends with this guy for a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to hear. I mean, that it's funny, that quote. So we, we use that on the, on the client that had this uh, private club, has this private club in, in uh, San Francisco called The Battery. It was, it's on the door of The Battery when you go in there. Um, but other permutations of that quote I mentioned to you have stuck with me. Yeah. So even at my current job, Curie, we shape our tools and thereafter they yep, shape yep. us. And, you know, I think what we're trying to figure out is like, okay, what is this tool done in terms of, my mental model of how to use it. Um, what if we flip that? Like, what if we're trying to map that experience to, to, you know, to you. Um, and so maybe the next time we talk, we can, we can get into the subject of yeah. ontological design. That, that, is, <laughs> that is a fascinating topic. And, and it goes back to that. Like I definitely like whether you're an innovator, whether you're a product designer, whether you are a CEO, your work goes into shaping something but then you don't realize how much that in return, it shapes us. Uh, like the, you, we talked about the phone example on our last call, like how much is the phone beginning to shape our lives in ways that maybe are unhealthy and how can we reclaim that? Uh, it's done some great transformative things for us, but it's also uh, created some dependencies that are not necessarily healthy. I, I look forward to those conversations. Peter, if people yeah. want to learn more about you and the work that you do, where can they find you? Uh, Marketos.com. It's probably a good place to start. I kind of link out from there. So uh, that'd be good. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Peter. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on the show. And I look forward to future conversations. Cheers, Steve. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening to the Culture Design Show. We'll see you again next time. Be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes. And while you're at it, feel free to leave a review of the podcast. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.